and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to go from them, or excuse me, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. This is God's word. So here Jesus returns to the use of parables. Mark has not recorded a parable of Jesus since chapter 4. Mark uh, deploys the parables of Jesus less than any other gospel writer. And if you remember in chapter 4, he makes it clear that for those with faith, the parables can be understood. But for those who are opposed to Jesus' teaching, for those without faith, the parables are just going to bring more confusion. Yet what we have here in this parable... What we have here is very little confusion. There isn't much to guess at. What we have here is probably the clearest of all Jesus' parables. There's nothing really enigmatic here. This is as much an allegory as it is a parable. And each figure in the story has a very direct parallel. So let's go quickly through each of those before we get into the outline. The man who planted the vineyard, that's God. God is the owner and the planter of the vineyard because he's the owner and the planter of everything. The vineyard is Israel. Frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vineyard. So for centuries, the vineyard had been the national symbol for Israel. Remember the ancient Jewish coin that I showed you a few weeks ago? The coin with a palm branch on one side? Look what's on the other side. A cluster of grapes. So it's a vineyard. This is Israel. This is their symbol. This is their bald eagle, right? This, this idea of being a vineyard. The tenant farmers in the story, these are the religious leaders. These leaders are basically sharecroppers. This, this practice was very common in ancient Israel. You had wealthy landowners negotiating terms with farmers. These tenant farmers, they would farm the land. The owner would take a predetermined cut of their crop, of their fruit, and then the farmers would make their living off the rest. I don't have to explain this to this crowd. So these tenant farmers, they were the religious leaders of Israel. And it should be said that this parable is predominantly a condemnation of Israel's religious leaders. Not a condemnation of the nation as a whole per se, but it is a scathing condemnation of its leadership. So the leadership goes, so goes the nation. Therefore, it's the leaders that bear the brunt of God's judgment. 
What then is the season or, or the harvest time in this parable? What could that be? Well, that's the season when God comes to expect spiritual fruit from his vineyard, from his people. The servants, the servants sent to collect the fruit, these are the different prophets of God sent to Israel. Beginning with Moses, God sent prophets and spokesmen to his people. These are the servants in the parable. And then, and then the beloved son. The beloved son of the vineyard owner is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Jesus writes himself into the story. So those, those are the component figures in this parable. And it, its meaning is very plain. And so as we walk through it this morning, I'm going to unpack it in five ways. I'll talk about redemption, rebellion, rejection, excuse me, retribution, and then retreat. So let's first talk about redemption. This parable is basically a condensed history lesson on the nation of Israel. And you can't talk about the nation of Israel without talking about redemption. The nation started with a people being placed in a land and to get that people, the family of a man named Jacob, who was the son of a man named Isaac, who was the son of a man named Abraham, to get that family planted in the land, God had to redeem them out of slavery in Egypt. To redeem them is another way of saying he had to set them free. And, and you know, if you've read the opening chapters of Exodus, it was God, through some very miraculous wonders, who set the Israelites free from Pharaoh. So the Bible is the story of a gracious God choosing a people for himself and establishing them in a land so that they could prosper and thrive. So they could be a contrast society and therefore call all other nations to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That was his design. This is why just before God established them in the land, he had them, or he gave them a, a certain way to live. He gave them a certain way to worship. He, he gave them strict orders on, on what it looked like to drive the people out of the land that he was giving them. Even telling them that, that he would be the one to drive out the people on their behalf. So he set them free from slavery. He's redeemed them, ushered them into a land of their own, driven out the occupants of the land for them, shown them how to thrive in the land. Now all they have to do is do what he's told them to do, which is bring him glory through obedience to him. And from the outset of this parable, none of these parable, excuse me, these parallels would have been lost on the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is made up of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. The scribes were the teachers of the law. No one knew the Old Testament better than the scribes. And I bring that up because of what we read in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, at least the first seven verses of Isaiah 5, are the source material for this parable. And now I can't find Isaiah 5. There we go. It's after Isaiah 4. Um, let me read this to you. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they not rain upon it. Some of that language sound familiar? It would have sounded familiar to this group of religious leaders, too. In verse 2, he says, The vineyard is placed on a fertile hill. But in order to guarantee its success, he did all the things that you're supposed to do to have a quality fruit-bearing operation. He planted the choicest vine. He got a good plant, the right plant for the region, the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, a tower to protect it from intruders and from critters and whatever else could come into the vineyard. He, he hewed out a big wine vat so that the juice from the grapes could be crushed and contained. This is everything you did to produce a good vineyard. When you did all these things, you would expect that the whole operation would produce good fruit. But this vineyard in Isaiah 5 produced only buhushim. That's the Hebrew word for sour berries. Basically stinking, rotten grapes. Everything was done that should have been done. A wall for protection, a vat under the wine press, a tower that was used for the workers to find shade and shelter, protect the vineyard. Everything was done to make the vineyard a success. The choicest vine was put in there. What happened? Isaiah interprets the whole prophecy for us in in verse 7 here. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's that imagery again. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The nation God had planted and had set up for success, had set up to to bring him glory, it was characterized by immorality, injustice, bloodshed, and then as you read through the rest of chapter 5 here in Isaiah, it lays out their resume of sins, and you have one woe after another. Woe, 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 which is God pronouncing judgment on Israel because they were unfaithful to God. They were a rotten, stinking vineyard. That's what the Lord said through Isaiah to the people of God about their relationship to him. So back to the parable in Mark 12. You have Jesus telling the history of of Israel almost in the exact same way. And here's what you need to see in both Isaiah's prophecy and in Jesus' parable. God had been overwhelmingly good and patient and long-suffering with his people. He did everything for them to trust in him and bring him glory and serve his name, but they were not fruitful for him. They only rebelled against him. That was their consistent pattern of life as a nation. And so let's make this personal. Would I be wrong in saying that the Lord has been extravagantly gracious to you, to this church? Think about the country we live in. Think about the time we live in. On a more personal level, think about the family you've been giving or or, or the health that you've been given. Or on a material level, what what you possess. The, The Lord has been overwhelmingly kind and gracious to you. Everything you need to bear fruit for him. 
What is bearing fruit? Bearing fruit for God is recognizing that kindness to us. That kindness that first leads us to repentance and then that kindness that follows us around and hounds us with his goodness and his grace and and compels us to glorify him and to thank him. When Paul lays out the essence of sin in Romans chapter 1, he lays it out as people who did not glorify God nor did they thank him. An ungrateful people, blind to his kindness. So let's continue with the rest of the parable. Second point, Israel's rebellion against God. We see that illustrated in verses 2 through 5. It's illustrated in the repeated mistreatment of the servants who are sent to gather fruit by the owner of the vineyard. And the point of, of telling it this way is to incite rage at these tenant farmers. Anybody hearing this story would be saying, how could the tenants do that? How could they get away with this? This is outrageous. This is ingratitude. Uh, the, the, the servant, you know, he would, have, he would have paid them according to their arrangement. He wasn't trying to extort them. This is just ingratitude. This is open rebellion. This is wickedness. We have servant after servant after servant. One beaten. One gets his head bashed in. Others are beaten. Others are killed. All of them are treated shamefully. And you can just imagine those standing around listening to this. Wait a minute. Is it a good idea to keep sending servants? You had one that was beaten severely. You had the next one who got his head bashed in. You sure you want to keep sending servants to these tenants? This is a wicked bunch of tenants. But the owner just keeps sending them. People must be saying, enough is enough. You don't send another one. You send an army and you exact retribution. You take these, these tenants out. These tenants need to die. This is, this is ridiculous. Now again, who do the servants represent? These are the Old Testament prophets. God sent one after another, after another, after another to Israel. The prophets, they called Israel to repentance. They, they called them back to true worship. Time and time and time again, the prophets came. They denounced Israel's idolatry. They called for remembrance and righteousness. All of them did this. All the prophets, from Moses to John the Baptist, Moses being the, church, the first, John the Baptist being the last. That's what they did. And what did Israel do with the prophets? They rebelled against them. They ignored them. They doubted them. They mistreated them. They beat them. They wounded them. They heaped shame upon them. They threw them out. They murdered them. That's the history of the prophets. The history of Israel is filled with a mistreatment of God's prophets. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, in his dialogue with a man named Trypho, he accuses the Jews of sawing Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. We actually see a reference to it in Hebrews 11.37. The prophet is not named, but most think it is the prophet Isaiah. You know, as you read the prophets, they attempted to stone Ezekiel. Amos had to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected, and according to 2 Chronicles 24, he was also stoned. 1 Kings 22, Micah was beaten in the face. Read the Old Testament and you see the uniform hostility that's directed to the prophets 
the amount of hostility varied, expressed itself in different ways, but on a whole, it increased, it escalated, it escalated all the way down to John the Baptist, and what did they do with him? They chopped his head off. We read the Old Testament, and it is not a story of a people, a faithful people living for God. It's the story of a stiff-necked people and a rebellious people who God is being amazingly patient with and kind to. He's graciously calling them back to himself. But they they are locked into their rebellion. Third point is Israel's rejection of God's son. So they go a step further here. And this is where the story gets really amazing. Verse 6, he had one more official to send. He's exhausted all of his servants. He's got one more, a beloved son. He sent him, last of all, saying, they'll respect my son. Verse 7, those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's, let's take the inheritance as our own. The crowd would be expecting, the crowd hearing this story would, would, would be expecting that rather than sending the son, that the owner would pull together a force, that he would exact justice, that he would bring about the death of those tenants who brutalized and killed his servants. That would seem to be the just and right response. But no, the owner says, I'll send my beloved son. And who was that? It was Jesus Christ. Third time, third time beloved son, that phrase is used to describe Jesus. At his baptism, the father says, this is my beloved son. At his transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Now here, the beloved son. What kind of landowner is this? Servant after servant after servant dies at the hand of these tenants. And the landowner says, ah, I'll, I'll send my son. What kind of wisdom is behind this? What kind of thinking is behind this landowner's thinking? His son, distinct from all the other messengers, he's not a servant. He's the heir to all of God's possessions. He has all divine authority They ought to respect him, but they didn't. They said, let's kill him, and then we'll take everything. And that was the overriding attitude of the religious leadership in Israel, wasn't it? We want power. We want the prestige. We want the religion. We we want the accolades of the people. And to keep that, to maintain that, we've got to get rid of the son. And if we get rid of the son, if we get rid of him completely, just get him totally out of the way, then that power will always be ours. So in the story, they killed him. And that's, of course, where our story in the book of Mark is headed. It's headed to the crucifixion. It's headed to Jesus dying on a cross. And this is a death. This is something that the the religious leaders had long been planning. He was a threat to their power. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, what's it say? That then and there they conspired to kill him. For two, three years, they're trying to to maneuver and figure out, how are we going to kill this guy? How are we going to get rid of this guy? This son, we we need to do away with him. He's a threat to our power. He's going to take control. We need to take control. They were going to do exactly what their fathers and predecessors had done throughout the history of Israel. They were going to kill the prophet of God. And here's the thing that you have to know. They're not confused. They're not confused. They would kill the son knowing exactly who he was. That was the whole point. 
You see the darkness there? You see the wickedness there? It's embedded in this story. It's part of the richness of this story. To take ownership, to take the claim, to take the land, to have all the power, to have the inheritance, it takes killing the son. Therefore, they knew who the son was. They're not confused. And they not only killed the son, they threw him out of the vineyard, which probably refers to the fact that the whole nation rejected Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They threw him out. And they said, the kingdom is ours. The, the inheritance is ours. Get him out of here. The heir is dead. It all belongs to us. The vineyard belongs to us. Which that, of course, leads to retribution. Jesus asks a question to get there. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's a provocative question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Matthew's account of this parable tells us that the people standing around, that they shouted an answer. They said to him, bring those wretches to a wretched end. Matthew 21, 41. Bring those wretches to, those wretches to a wretched end. Jesus, this master storyteller, he, he has them hooked into this story. They've given him back the right answer. And then according to Matthew 21, 41, they also said, and he, the owner, he's going to rent out the vineyard to other tenants, to other vine growers who, who will pay him the proceeds in the proper season. Who will do what they were supposed to do. Who will honor the contract. Who will not kill his servants. And that's exactly what Mark says, too. He'll come and destroy the tenants, and he'll give the vineyard to others. God has been very, very patient for a very, very long time, hasn't he? Hundreds of years have passed since, since judgment fell on the nation of Israel. But retribution is going to come, and it's going to come from God, and it's going to come against the false and wicked religious leaders and all who follow him and the system that they've built, and it's all going to come in 70 A.D. 70 A.D., incredibly important date in the history of the world. And just as God had used the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment in 586 B.C., in 70 A.D., God would use the Romans, the general Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian, and he would come and they would destroy Jerusalem. And such was the devastation in Jerusalem that since the Romans destroyed the city there in 70 A.D., the temple has never been rebuilt. All the records have been destroyed. No one knows what tribe they're in. No one knows who the priests are. There is no priesthood. There are no sacrifices. There are no ceremonies. There is no Sanhedrin. There's no Pharisees or Sadducees, no priests, no chief priests. The whole system, the whole wicked system was utterly destroyed. Because he's going to give the vineyard to others. And what does he mean by that? He means two things. He means... The stewards, the tenant farmers, they're going to be completely changed out. Spiritual leadership is going to be given to a new group. Who could that be? Well, we'll first say it's the disciples. This group of ordinary guys, these peasant fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, they're the new tenants. They're now the custodians of the truth of God. They're the custodians and the guiders of the worship of God and the people of God. It's the apostles. They're the new tenants. This is why on the next night of this very week, Jesus will meet with his disciples in the upper room. He's going to tell them 
that the Holy Spirit is going to come on them and he's going to lead them into all truth. Why does he say that? Because they're going to be the stewards of the truth. That the mysteries that have been hidden from the ages past, they're going to be revealed and they're going to be revealed to the apostles. The Holy Spirit's going to reveal all truth to them. That's why Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to take the things of mine and show them to you, to the apostles. They're the new tenants. But in addition to that, as Dwight said, the others also means the Gentiles, you and me. You and me. We're invited now into God's vineyards. We can now, his vineyard, we can now drink from his cup. We can enjoy his fruits. We are his people. Fifth thing, the Sanhedrin, they retreat from Jesus. Verse 12, they're seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, so they left him and went away. They left him and they went away. They feared the people. The story, the parable, it was too good. It indicted the religious leaders, and everyone standing around knew who it was indicting, so they ran away. And bolded on that page for me is the reality that the religious leaders feared the people. This is the third time since chapter 11 that Mark has told us that the Sanhedrin fears the people. They don't fear the Lord, they fear the people. And when you fear people, you'll always make the decision that accommodates that fear. When you fear the Lord, the Lord you'll be untouchable. You'll be wise. Your decisions will be rooted in love and in grace. When you fear people, your decisions will be controlled by the people you fear. Thus the Sanhedrin. They fear the people. Let me conclude by circling back to verses 10 and 11. Jesus asks another question in verse 10. And the question itself mocks the Sanhedrin. Jesus says, Have you not read the Scripture? This is like asking a Supreme Court justice, you've read the Constitution, right? <laughs> of course they had read the Scriptures. And so he quotes Psalm 8, 118 to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, ch- the chief cornerstone. So the metaphor shifts from a vineyard to a building, and the sun becomes the stone. Jesus, he is the capstone of Israel Everything the law and the prophets point to is Jesus Christ. He's not the shadow. He's the very substance of their whole system. The capstone. The stone that completes the whole picture. That's the stone that they've rejected. That's Jesus Christ. So you have to understand, the psalm that he's referencing is laying out what is happening in Israel in this final week of Jesus' life. The stone that's being rejected will come back to be the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Do you see what's inherent in that analogy? It's the resurrection. To reject the stone does not mean that they're finished with Jesus. They're not finished with Jesus. He'll come back after he's rejected, and he will be the cornerstone from which all the lines are drawn. He's the cornerstone. Not for them, but for the others for the new religious leaders, for the, for the new people of God, for the new covenant elect of Yahweh. Acts 4.11, 1 Peter 2.6, Romans 9.32 and 33, Ephesians 2.20, all of those refer to Christ as the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Jesus Christ 
being the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is what sets all the lines. If it's straight, the whole building will be straight. No more relying on religious leadership. We're going to rely on Jesus Christ to be the cornerstone. And there will be no human explanation for this rejection and resurrection. That's what verse 11 means. This would, this would all be the Lord's doing. And it will be so stunning that we'll all confess together, this is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord is in charge of all this. His purposes are behind all of this. This is stunning to us. Is there anything more marvelous than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? No, there's, there's no human explanation for it. If we sat and thought of a way to be saved, we would never think up the gospel. We, w- we would never think of the Lord of the universe becoming a man and dying in our place and taking our punishment upon himself and rising again in triumph over sin and death. We would have never come up with that. It's marvelous. It's too marvelous to think that the Lord would orchestrate that because of his love for us. That the owner would send his son, even though we've been wicked to everyone else he's ever sent. So the son becomes the stone. When Matthew recorded this parable, he added the verse, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Here's what that means. Either you will fall on Jesus and be broken in conviction, repentance, and salvation, or he will fall on you and crush you to powder. The choice is yours. What will you do with that stone? What will you do with that stone? If you're here today, if you've never given your life to Christ, that stone will be either the thing that breaks you, unravels you, and and, and leads you to putting only your faith in him, or ultimately it will crush you in death. This is why one of the only Excuse me, one of the early Christian titles for Christ was the stone. That's what they called him in the early church, the stone. The builders rejected him. All those saved in him have built their lives upon him. Story of a man who traveled to Paris, and he went there with the express purpose of visiting the Louvre. His mission was to see da Vinci's masterpiece, the Mona Lisa. He stood amongst the crowd, staring at the painting for a moment, and he said to himself, I don't like it. Doesn't really seem like much of a painting to me. And one of the curators overheard his murmuring. He stopped him and said, Sir, it's not the painting which is judged here. This painting has stood the test of time. This painting is the most highly regarded piece of artwork that maybe has ever existed When you stand in front of the Mona Lisa, it's not the painting which is being judged, it's you. The man was a little stunned, but the curator went on. He says, for for you to come in and say you're not impressed with the Mona Lisa, that doesn't say anything about the Mona Lisa, but it says a great deal about you. Jesus' point in the parable is saying the same thing. The religious leaders, they have no position to judge Jesus. He's the cornerstone. If you don't like Jesus, that doesn't say anything about Jesus, but it says everything about you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
for your word. Thank you for the richness of a parable like this that confronts us with the wickedness in our own hearts, really. Our rebellion and rejection of you. But Lord, up against that is your incredible love for us that would send your son to die for us. To die in our place. To give us eternal life. To be the cornerstone of our lives and of our church and of all reality. Lord, I thank you so much for this people that have gathered this morning. We're here, Lord, and we, 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 we've come to worship you. We've come to, to draw truth out of your word together, to encourage one another. I pray that that's happened today. I pray that you're, you're pleased with what's gone on here. And God, if there's anyone here that needs to put their faith in you, that needs to stop rejecting the stone, but let the stone reveal to them who they are, God, I pray that that would happen in these moments ahead and that they would not leave here without have an idea as to where they stand uh, with you and where they stand with eternity. Again, thank you for this time. Uh, we, we love you, and we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.